0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about how Gen Z is different from their millennial predecessors through the lens of food.
3: My knowledge of alcohol didn't really come from like Bud Light commercials
1: or like Project X.
2: Yeah, and that's my gripe with the platform as well, is that all these DIY videos, cooking videos, they're 20 seconds.
1: What's one food item from your childhood that you wish you could have today? Dunkaroos because they don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. although the Dunkaroos Twitter was activated again a year ago,
4: so it's only a matter of time. They've tweeted a couple times. It's pretty hype.
2: Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's food news and storytelling roundup wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. For today's episode, I'm sharing a recording of a recent online panel I moderated for the James Beard Foundation as part of a series of webinars related to COVID-19 and the food system in partnership with
1: Civil Eats.
5: In this conversation, you'll hear from farmers and other food leaders around the country about the things they've experienced in the months since the pandemic began. Black farmers losing markets for their produce in southern states, increased interest in local meat in Iowa, vegetable farms in New York moving their sales online, and so much more. You can find more conversations like this one and sign up to attend future webinars on COVID-19 and the food system at jamesbeard.org. This is also the last Farm Report episode of the summer season, so until September, stay safe. And just a reminder, there are many episodes in the archive to catch up on as our socially distanced reality drags on. Enjoy the episode.
6: Hello, everyone. My name is Colleen Vincent. I'm the VP of Community for the James Beard Foundation. Welcome to today's industry support webinar COVID-19 and local food, challenges and opportunities. Despite challenges like shuttered farm markets, farmers markets and restaurants, a shortage of meat processors and the scramble to move sales online, food producers are selling into local and regional markets and have demonstrated real resilience during COVID-19. In this panel, we'll explore how the pandemic has affected regional food systems in different areas around the country and what it means for the future. But first, we have some housekeeping notes. Uh, We ask everyone to please uh, keep your questions to the end. There's a chat function, a question function in the box, um, and you can type it in there. Um, After the broadcast has wrapped up, we will have a recording available that you can return to. Um, So, thank you again for joining us for today's webinar. Today will be moderated by senior policy reporter, Lisa Elaine Held of Civil Eats. She covers the food system, agriculture, and the environment for many publications, and her stories have been published by Eater, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Food and Wine. She also produces and hosts the weekly podcast, The Farm Report, on Heritage Radio Network. She is based in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. As for our panelists... First, we'll start with James Beard, Leadership Award winner and Executive Director of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, Cornelius Blanding, who began his career in development work as an economic development intern for the city of Miami Beach, and has since then gained a broad experience based including rural, international, and cooperative economic development. In addition to serving as Executive Director of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives Land Assistance Fund, Cornelius has also, and also served and continues to serve on various boards and committees, including the National Cooperative Business Association, Agricultural Safety and Health Council of America, Southeast Climate Consortium, and the Presbyterian Committee on the Self-Development of People. Our next panelist is Executive Director, Dina Liebman from Future Harvest. Dina is the Executive Director of Future Harvest, the Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture. A nonprofit working to advance agriculture that sustains the farmers, environment, and communities of the Chesapeake region. Dina is also co-owner of the Zigbone Farm Retreat, a naturally built retreat and event space and a hundred-acre sheep and goat farm in Maryland's Cataton Mountains. Our next panelist is Lindsay lusher shoot CEO of Farm CEO Farm Generations Cooperative, also a farmer and co-owner of Hardy Roots Community Farm. Lindsay is the founder of the Farm Generations Cooperative, a national initiative to expand the market share and viability of small farmers with fair farm-owned technology. Before Farm Generations, Lindsay co-founded the National Young Farmers Coalition and led the organization in its first decade. She has authored nine policy reports for the coalition, and under her tenure, the organization launched state and national campaigns on affordable farmland. She was recognized as a champion of change by President Barack Obama, and is the recipient of the Glenwoods Harvest Award. Eating Well Magazine named Lindsay an American food hero, and she's among the 20 food leaders under 40 by food tech. Wendy Johnson is our next panelist. She's the farmer and owner of Joya Food Farm and farmer manager of Centerview Farms. She and her husband own and operate Joya Food Farm, a diverse livestock and organic grain farm located in Northeast Iowa. They raise and sell meat and eggs direct to consumer through buying clothes and their e-commerce platform. She also works as a farm manager for her family's conventional grain farm, which she is trying to infiltrate by adding crop livestock and habitat diversity slowly, but surely. And so I am very pleased to turn our panel over to our moderator, Lisa Elaine Held of Civil Eats. Thank you, Lisa thank
5: you so much and thank you all for joining us today Um, i'm thrilled to be moderating this second webinar in the series hosted by civil eats and the james beard foundation Um, and my colleague nadra niddle moderated the first one which was on race and food during covid 19 and i wanted to start by saying if you missed it i really encourage you to watch the recording of that one Um, but today we're going to be talking about local food so Civil Eats has, for a very long time, closely covered local and regional food systems from small farms that offer CSAs and sell at markets and directly to restaurants uh, to local processors and food hubs that distribute regionally. And since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, these systems have been in the spotlight more than ever before. We've been watching what we cover all the time get covered by every publication and really get more attention and you know, as coronavirus outbreaks hit grocery stores and the biggest meatpacking plants, many people who had not thought of buying local before signed up for CSAs or purchased local grass-fed beef. But producers have at the same time faced incredible challenges in terms of operating during a pandemic and losses due to restaurant closures. And I've been reporting on all of this um, since March, talking to farmers, professors, policy, experts all over the country and i think the thing that's most interesting to me is that depending on who you talk to covid 19 is either sounding the death knell for local food or introducing a modern day renaissance um, so there's a lot to dig into and with this panel we're going to try to get to the bottom of what the future looks like so um i thought we would start with wendy um, wendy one of the reasons local food has gotten so much attention is that the sort of counterpart, the commodity food system, has really been disrupted, and Iowa is at the center of that. Um, you know, the meatpacking plants and rural communities where they're located have been particularly hard hit by COVID-19. Um, you know, workers have have been getting sick. Commodity pig farmers have been trucking animals all over the country because of processing backups. It, it's just there's a lot of attention on kind of the failure of that side of the system. Um, and you are in Iowa, and you also operate a small organic farm there. So tell us what it's been like for you during this time
7: well it's it's been really interesting. Um, we've We've seen definitely the fragility of the of our food system, and um what we initially saw in um, the beginning when there were food sh- started to get food shortages in the grocery stores was some panic buying, which I'm sure happened all across the US. But it, it's very interesting in Iowa because we have so many meat packing plants here. We raise so many hogs and chickens and turkeys and eggs in, in Iowa. And to see those uh, that loss of um, fresh meat in the meat cases in the grocery stores um, was shocking to a lot of people and so um, they I think a lot of people panicked and they went to directly to uh, local farms to see if they could either buy in bulk or um, you know purchase whole whole animals um, and purchase many of them at a time or uh, you know go in with another family people were starting to get creative in terms of uh, going with half or quarters or shares on different, on different animals. Um, and so we saw that initially as, um, uh, because we have an e-commerce site, um, we kind of moved into it very uh, fluidly and um, uh, our sales did increase um, for quite some time. And uh, because of kind of this panic of not being able to see the meats in, in, the, in their grocery stores, um, as, as, as you said earlier, we, we have buying clubs, which have been quite successful for us, um, but we also like to diversify our market, our, our marketing, and that include aggregation and uh, retailers and restaurants. And it's kind of interesting to see how the, how the buying clubs um, really increased um, in numbers. Um, during that time. And um, obviously the restaurants and the the retailers um, suffered a little bit, those numbers went down. Um, Now they're kind of balancing out. Um, But we also offered, um, starting a few years ago, we offered a CSA or a meat subscription. And we saw those numbers really increase um, in customers um, because people wanted this consistent uh, meat product um, delivered to them.
5: Right, and did you see any um, challenges with getting your animals processed? Because I, I know you know I've reported a lot on the fact that um, small processors have been overloaded um, because of the slowdowns at the bigger plants, not being able to, you know, the the inventory moving to the smaller plants, and then everybody wanting more local meat. Um, what has that been like for you?
7: So we luckily had our date set um, for May, June um, and July um, pre, usually in a normal year, you have to make your appointments about six months in advance. So we had those appointments. So we were able to really be able to supply. Um, That doesn't solve our problem of our future future supply. And right now we, dates in most processes are backed up until the early 2022s um that year and so we are really dependent on the relationship that we've created with our processors um and hoping they will fit us in in places where um here and there um but that's the most important thing i have heard that there are processors in iowa these are smaller processors state inspected usually um, some are, are only taking um, wholesale or retail um, animals. They're not uh, doing the custom uh, processing, kind of leaving the custom processors to do just the custom. And um, here in Iowa, we'll see uh, deer processing coming up pretty soon here in the fall. And that, that also, we're, we're wondering what is that going to look like and um, how is that all going to work? Uh, We definitely are short processors in Iowa, uh, small-scale processors, but we hope um, the Interstate Shipment Program just passed here in Iowa um, and that state-inspected processing um, plants can uh, ship or they can put a USDA uh, stamp onto products, um, which will really help a lot of the direct marketers here in Iowa.
5: Wendy mentioned e-commerce, and lindsay, um i I think it makes sense to go to you to talk a little bit about that. One thing that uh, we've heard a lot from small farms is that in response to the pandemic, they have shifted all of their sales online. And you had created this online sales platform for farmers, and
6: i don't
5: I don't know was it not ready? It was ready, <laughs> but you basically kind of had it catapulted into um, use by COVID, Uh, tell
2: us a little bit about about that. That's right, so the Farm Generations Cooperative is a cooperative of growers nationally that is building fair technology for farmers. And the first project, this entire cooperative was incubated by the National Young Farmers Coalition. While I was there, we received some USDA funding to build this platform for direct market sales, because we saw over the last five to 10 years, more software coming online that all, I mean, outside of COVID, more consumers are wanting to purchase food online. Like that's, that's a trend that was already in motion. COVID has sped that up significantly. But we saw issues with the current software that was available and the fact that none of those platforms were cooperatively owned. So that introduced that introduces a significant amount of risk for farmers who are putting all of their pricing data on that platform, all of their customers. They they have very little leverage um, when it comes to influencing the price of a given piece of software or how their data is gonna be used. And we have stories of farmers that ran into issues with that. So we decided to build a, a platform that would, in fact, facilitate sales between consumers and farmers. We built a version of that and intended to launch it. The platform is called Grown By. It will be an app that will be widely available in the fall. The the intention was to test it uh, in in beta form this spring. And then COVID struck and we were like, okay, we need to expand the beta. So in fact, we took on 18 farms this season using Grown Um, many of whom lost their farmers market. And essentially what Grown By does is enables a farm to put up their products online, uh, to sell like a CSA share through a subscription, and eventually it'll be able to do a lot more than that, help to uh, manage those sales, help to do pre-order, pre-order. our uh, My farm, Hardy Roots Farm, one of the significant shifts for us was that we have we have a farm store on site we opened a couple of years ago usually just breaks even like it's more of a i don't know i called it like a community endeavor just because we wanted to be able to open our front door to our community normally we sell most things through subscription not everybody's familiar with that we ship um, a lot of product down to new york city but the farm store just uh the sales growth was pretty incredible we in fact closed the store made that into a warehouse for our products and regional products um, around us from um, uh, local farms and did a lot of pre-ordering too. So it wasn't just CSA, but also consumers wanting to fill a grocery basket in advance and then have an order ready in a box that they could pick up with no contact. So yes, technology is incredibly important in this moment. It's important that we have technology that is able to speak to the complexity of direct farm sales. Mindy was talking about like the availability of meat, we're not like a grocery store at our <laughs> farm store. We don't have product all the time. it Like our, it, it just varies. And so what we're trying to do with grown by and we're modeling is how can we just make that interaction between a, a farmer who is limited has this incredible product available, but not in the same way you would expect um, with a grocery store uh, purchase and um, the the consumer. So. Yep, it'll, it'll be available this fall. And right now we're in the process of talking to farmers about their experience with the tech that they have used outside of Grown By this season and um, are hopefully going to be able to solve a, a lot of the challenges that, that have arisen. But I think overall, the food system has changed. Like these, these buying habits, um, whether it's buying from a farm on a subscription basis or just purchasing food online, I think a lot of those things are going to stick, and certainly how farms are presenting themselves online and presenting their products. I think that technology is going to be a fundamental piece going forward, even even more so than it than it was um, before this um, uh, COVID crisis occurred.
5: Yeah, I I want to get more into that. I think um, we're definitely I definitely want to hear what everyone has to say about sort of the future and and um, where these challenges become opportunities. Um, so let's put a pin in that <laughs> but um Cornelius um I wanted to hear from you um, you, know, you you work with a network of farms and co-ops in the south that primarily is made up of black farmers um, what have you seen in terms of the challenges the farmers in your network are facing do they look like some of the challenges Wendy and Lindsay are talking about um, What what have you been seeing
3: yeah well thank thank thanks for the question about very much so so the Federation is a cooperative association of black farmers, landowners, and cooperatives all around the South. Uh, we're primarily working in about nine Southern states, deep South states. We have offices, physical offices, staff, and membership concentrated all around the deep South. Um, because we're working primarily with limited resource farmers, landowners, and cooperatives, uh, we have to deal with a number of issues. Uh, many of these are agricultural co-ops, but some are not. Um, and in their communities, we're dealing with everything from housing, to access to credit to the to the issues on the farm. So we've seen many of those issues that have been discussed already. One of the other things we always have to gear up uh, for disasters, and right now we're speaking about COVID-19, uh, but as an organization, we had to do the same, exact same things after Katrina, after some of the tornadoes that tear through the South, uh, and now Katrina, I mean, now COVID-19. But what we normally do right after any disaster, uh, we do an assessment of our membership. And uh, maybe two, three weeks after the pandemic and after people started doing the shut-in orders, we did an assessment of about 200 of our members, 200 black farmers. Um, two or three weeks later, we added about a hundred more assessments to that, surveys where we were asking specific questions to make sure that the data that we had didn't change over the weeks. Uh, and roughly about 82% of those people said they have been affected, their markets have been impacted. Because when you're talking about small limited resource farmers, our farmers specifically, they're selling directly to some of these restaurants uh, and they lost those markets. Many of the farmers' markets closed down. So about 82% of them said they were affected by this COVID disaster relief. That was direct directly, but you had, and then you had about 75% who didn't even know some of the disaster assistance relief was out there. So as an organization, what we were doing is really trying to make sure we got the information out got it out in the environment where you had this disaster where nobody could move around. So now you're talking about an an organization that's spread out around the South with physical staff and locations that used to doing direct hands-on work has to now resort to telephones and Zoom calls and the Zoom calls were very (laughs) limited to us. Unfortunately, my office is in Atlanta, so we have a lot better access, but many of our field offices, all of our field offices are in rural areas. They don't have access to broadband. Some of them don't even have internet access. So we have to be creative around those things. So our challenge was trying to figure out how do we connect to a membership of limited resource farmers and cooperatives in a in, in, during a pandemic and make sure that they one, knew about the resources that were out there and then how do they start accessing them? How do they start utilizing them? And, and in a sense of this, not only were they impacted in terms of their farms, many of those communities now were shut off and didn't have access to food and so the way we've always looked at this is that farmers have been the first responders in our communities and particularly these communities these farms even though they're limited resource growers they're the anchors of their communities in these communities that we're talking about and so really trying to address this from multiple areas but again what we know is that about 82 percent of them were directly impacted by this
5: yeah, and you know, you, you just mentioned there's there's sort of two crises, which is you know farmers are are challenged in terms of uh, markets, and then also there's been a huge rise in food insecurity, and and one of the um, things that that the federation has done was you got a grant to do the, the USDA Farm to Families Food Box program, and um, this is a really Interesting example to me because that program has almost exclusively been in the news as a disaster. Um, they kind of gave up a lot of money, and there was a lot of missteps and who got the funds, and you know, were they was was it being used in the right way? And your organization got the grant and seemed to just immediately be distributing tons of farm fresh food to a lot of people um can you talk a little bit about why like how we were able to so quickly mobilize um farmers and the network to make that work
3: yeah Yeah, yes uh and and you're absolutely right there actually there are two faces to this program and we understand all the challenges that are involved one when this pan this pandemic is new to all of us and so here you are having the government trying to really ramp up resources and get them out to do something and you know, there's there's different views around all of this, uh, but we felt the challenge in this as well. You know, one, in order to put in the application uh, for this uh, for these agreements around this food box program, you have something like five to seven day turnaround. And so that's extremely difficult within itself, trying to get the amount of information that was being asked as part of this, this, this program to get all that kind of information together, get it in uh, and validate things in a short turnaround to, Again, not many people, including the government, USDA, knew much about what was going on and what they really needed. So we were operating in that environment. And so I see it's a huge challenge for many others who might be interested in or might be better suited or in positions to actually distribute food to these communities. And so you had a lot of folks who couldn't access access it. Fortunately, we could. But we're a 53-year-old organization. Um, we're a 53-year-old organization with offices and staff around all around the south with uh, folks who are on the ground working directly with our membership the membership who own and control the organization and regional marketing is something that we've known has been a critical part of what we do from the beginning as a matter of fact our organizations and the cooperatives that make up our organization were formed out of necessity uh, we were formed in the 1960s during turbulent times so black farmers didn't have any option But to figure out systems that work within a system in order to survive. Those were the 22 co-ops that created the federation. They came out of necessity and they formed the federation out of necessity. And one thing that's been clear to us is that we spend every hour of our days working on land retention issues, making sure that black farmers maintain their land base in a system that's constantly trying to take it. We spend all of our time making sure that farmers and co-ops have access to markets when there aren't any or when they're very inequitable. And so those things are what we've done historically over 53 years, and so we were set up to do that. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a big transition for us to say, look, we're already set up to do this. And again, I mentioned to you, for us, farmers are farmers are the first responders because when Katrina hit, uh, those tornadoes hit, our, our communities don't get fed unless those farmers provide that food, and it's no different with this food with this our uh, pandemic. So the food box program, when it was announced. We already had converted our training center over to a distribution site with uh, one of the food pantries where the communities were coming in getting food from our training center. We had already converted one of our co-ops over to a facility where we can get food down to a farmer's market in New Orleans where people could drive up. So it was an easy transition for us. But again, because of our history, because of our pain also. And so but I do see the challenges with others. Uh, but this food po- box program by no means is perfect. Uh, this pandemic <laughs> isn't perfect, uh, but we have been figuring out how to navigate the challenges around it to do what's most important and what I hope the food box program is set up. And that's to reimagine our food system to really look at it from a local perspective and make sure that we fill it out from a local and regional perspective, as opposed to depending on, as Wendy mentioned, some of these uh, processors who are large processors were forced to close down and weren't and weren't able to process uh things we dealt with that issue also some of the folks who we're working with around meat we had to scale back our program because we could no longer deliver meat because we couldn't get it processed so those are the challenges but the opportunities are how do we rebuild this system how do we make sure that we build some local infrastructure that's owned by people in the communities and that we recognize farmers and communities as the ones who are really on the ground uh, supporting and uh responding to their community needs, even in times of disaster. Uh, At this point, we've delivered about 12,000 boxes, I think, of produce. Each box being about 25 pounds of food, and we've delivered them through systems and through partnerships we already had set up with many of the black churches, with food pantries, uh, with other nonprofit organizations who are already working with communities who were in need. Uh, And those folks are in need because of this pandemic, but they were in need before this pandemic as well. So these systems are extremely important. This pandemic has shed a light on some of the inequities in the country and shown that, hey, there are a lot of needs out there because of this pandemic, but there are a lot of needs out there that existed before the pandemic. And we have to figure out the best way to address them and address them from a full perspective. And so this conversation is timely. I think Silver Leaks and uh, the James Beard Foundation for having them. We got to continue to have them, but we got to really be, be be very intentional about what we do after this how do we rebuild and so looking at this food box program and all that it is and isn't and figuring out where do we go from here and how do we use it as a stepping stone
5: yeah absolutely um thank you and dina um you've also been um kind of responding to the needs of a community of farmers just a a different community which is the farmers in the mid-atlantic can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you noticed right away when COVID 19 emerged that, that farmers were facing and some of the ways that Future Harvest has uh, jumped in to, to help those farmers?
4: Sure. Um, you know, it was only like four and a half months ago, but it seems like it was years and years ago <laughs> that <Yeah>. the <laughs> pandemic started. Um, but, Uh, At at the very beginning, the anxiety was just palpable in our community of farmers, which are mostly diversified fruit and vegetable farmers, some grain farmers in the Chesapeake region. Um, And at that time, you know, this was brand new, brand new to everybody in the world. Um, And nobody knew how to keep themselves, their workers, and their customers safe. Um, And at the same time, Demand was spiking. Uh, That's what we've seen a lot of for our farmers is that um, the demand just went, just skyrocketed at at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And so this all led to all manner of pivoting, which I think is the word of the year. Uh, Farmers had to scramble to adapt and so did future harvest. We're a 21-year-old organization that has uh, worked to advance sustainable agriculture in the Chesapeake region. Um, So the first thing we did was we created a a Find a Farmer map, because um, as the other panelists have mentioned, consumers, they were walking into grocery stores, shelves were empty, and there was this sense of panic. I, I felt it a little bit myself. So we created this map. We have 670 listings on it, and we've had about 160,000 views as of today. Um, I hadn't checked in a while, and the link to it will be in the chat box. Um, The second thing we did is we, it does seem so long ago, we learned everything we could about the virus, and in those... Days, those early days, it was all about surface contamination, not about respiratory transmission. And so it was a lot about packaging and um, gloves and how to put your gloves on and off. And anyway, uh, we did, we developed safety protocols for farmers markets and we held webinars on um, food safety protocols, mainly in the pack stations and then also um, in. At, at the markets, um, we held a community COVID call. Which um, Cornelius, that was sort of our uh, cheap and easy way of doing a survey. Uh, we just had everybody pile onto a call, and we had some farmers leading it and just talking about what they were dealing with. And you know, uh, they everybody was going all online. They, again, new packaging regimes, there were collaborations starting up for home deliveries. Uh, We saw an uptick in interest in cooperatives, especially on the part of farmers of color. Um, A lot of pooling of resources. Um, At the same time all this was happening, we, we saw that, you know, like everybody in the world did, the lines of Uh, feeding into the food banks, and um, farmers not being able to get their food to the food banks, so we started a mini-grant campaign called Feed the Need. Uh, We raised about $50,000 that we're paying out to farmers uh, this month to contribute their produce to food banks or any, you know, any farmers' uh, families in need, whatever they see fit. Uh, We got $250,000 worth in funding requests. So we're still raising money. Um, Again, a link in the chat if you want to donate. Um, We moved all our programming online, our field schools, all our farmer to farmer education, beginner farmer training program. Uh, The annual conference is going to be awesome, but it's also going to be virtual. and I just have to hand it to small and mid-scale diversified fruit, vegetable, meat, and dairy farmers. They were nimble, they were collaborative, they rose to the occasion, and they kept our communities fed in those early days. And I, I just have to hand it to them. It was, it was great. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of our community. Um, and to sort of echo what all the other panelists are saying this this pandemic is sh- is shining a light on challenges um there's a lot of uncertainty but it's also providing um a real opening for many opportunities and so we're about to launch a project called the RCR project resilient crisis ready Chesapeake food system and it's going to start Cornelius with a survey um, on getting People's ideas, just a big brain dump on what they think we need to do to ensure that our food system is never in a weak and vulnerable position again. How do we strengthen our local and regional food system? What does that take? Anything from emergency seed banks, we we had a run on seeds, uh, farmers couldn't get seeds. Um, uh, Many, any number of things, local procurement standards, Um, but I, if you're going to ask about policy, I can go into all that later. So, well, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I just, we're seizing this as an opportunity as well as a, um, you know, a, a difficult time.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, The wonderfully US-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. US Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their beautiful red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile makes them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com.
5: love to hear everyone. Um, if if you'd all like to kind of weigh in on this this question, I mean, Cornelius, you made this point that um, this is one disaster, right? And there's been a lot of there've been many other disasters faced by farmers, and we're also still, you know, standing in the middle or at the precipice of a of a major disaster, which is the climate crisis, and and thinking about that, right, while we're in this other one. Um, And I think, you know, I I would love to hear from you. You've all kind of like scratched the surface, but I'd love to get more into what what do you feel like we learned about um, local food, small farms, regional food systems from this period and, and, you know, making it through this pandemic day by day? What have we learned about how to feed ourselves and, and how to have a more sustainable, resilient food system in the
2: future? Um, I think consumers have learned a lot. I'll say that much. (laughs) I mean, I'm, we're kind of like, you know, this is what this is. We've, we've been part of this system. We know it. Well, it's been Mm -hmm. the first time where I have felt as a farmer, truly essential. I've always known that I was essential, right? Like, but now our neighbors, right? Wow. We can't believe we're we're so grateful that you are here. You make me yeah. feel secure because you're here in my community growing food that I can go and buy. Um, so I think that has been a significant shift just in the con- from the consumer's vantage point. If they have no idea where their food comes from and it's not showing up where they expect it in the grocery store, suddenly they're looking outside and saying who who else in the community is here to here to provide. So that has really been a reckoning in the consumer community which is is very exciting um i mean there are the food i think this is also laid bare just economic insecurity in the united states in such a huge way and the food system is where you see that first like the the lines to food banks like the the inability of a highly consolidated food system to quickly pivot to serve that need to serve all of the needs Um, it's it has just made hopefully everyone aware of the degree of risk that we um, have in a, in a system without small uh, and local agriculture. It is absolutely essential and I'm hopeful that coming out of this people will realize that and we can actually get behind some system change to really support all of the growers that um, we're working with.
5: Wendy, I'm, I'm curious to hear if you also um, are as uh seeing the same thing as Lindsay in terms of are people thinking differently about their food choices and do you think that that is something that will continue?
7: This is a great question because um, I'm part of a broader network of farmers here through Practical Farmers of Iowa and um, what we've been hearing with um, our our large network of direct-to-consumer farmers and ranchers are one, they've, they've created some different strategies and solutions to, um, to marketing. Um, and the, the CSAs that had a resurgence and um, where they in the past year or so they've been dying. And, and so um, I question what is going to happen when those, let's say the vegetables uh, CSAs end in the fall right and and our and our our, um, meat processing is 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 having a hiccup because we can't get um our animals into the processors in a timely way and on our farm we're seeing uh a, a slight decline in sales from its peak in uh april and may and the early parts of june and uh we're we're wondering and, and amongst a PFI uh, network, some other farmers are having a similar uh, situation. Um, one farmer that does a lot of their um, uh, marketing into the suburbs of Chicago at the peak saw um, he did uh, in one month he did sales that he would do in three months um, within the month of May and now he's he's also seeing a decline um, in sales. And so, how can we get um, as farmers um, and organizations? How can we get this to stick? How can we get um, local um, local food and the importance, the essential? We are essential. How how can we continue that? And and here in Iowa, we're I'm questioning. Um, our farmers are questioning. How how can we make it stick? And I think it comes to I think you're going to touch on this later, Lisa, uh, on a federal and state level, and we're going to talk about policy um, um, when it comes to that. I think that that will help. Um, federal subsidies are are in the, I think, in the wrong place for one, and um, food is very undervalued here in the U.S. And when grocery stores started to get filled and stocked up again. Um, it's very easy for consumers to just move back into that uh into those into those habits of buying at the store. Right.
5: Yeah, yeah. well what are some of the the policy solutions that you all are thinking about? Let's just get into that. <laughs>
4: <Gina>? <laughs> I raised my hand. Um so we've been thinking a lot about this with the RCR project. Um So, a bill passed unanimously in Maryland uh, requiring state institutions to um, source 20% of the food in their food service areas locally or or regionally. Um, Again, passed unanimously. It was vetoed by Governor Hogan. Um, It's going to come up again in the next session, and they expect to override the veto. And when that happens, that's going to be um, that's going to be a big market. It's a wholesale market, not top dollar, but it's um, it's going to be a big market. I think that kind of policy has to be put in place across the nation, keeping these markets strong. And you can't just rely on consumer behavior. You, and we have to do some true cost accounting of the true cost of producing food in mass produced ways, importing them into regions that are perfectly capable of growing their own food. Um, the environmental bill that's attached to that kind of agriculture is, is high, but it's, it's over here, right? So it's not counted. Whereas the cost of production for a, a direct-to-consumer farmer, all the costs are right in, right into that, that cost. And that's why it costs more so um i I could go on i'll let other people speak i have lots of other policy ideas but i think those are important
3: uh this this is this is a this is a huge this is a huge conversation i know we don't have time for all of it i agree with everything that's been said uh lindsay in terms of hoping consumers really stay with where we're going i i don't i doubt it uh because the first you know even in terms of this pandemic you see what grocery stores in order to get consumers in and rightfully so, they have began to lower prices because so many people are hurt economically out there. But when they lower those prices, somebody else bears the grunt of that to what Dina is saying. This is an issue around parity. Uh, and so we have to have those conversations that we've been scared to have. Uh, we got to have them in the future when all this is over, hopefully. Um, but we also got to look at some other things because there's some other things at the source of this uh, because in our communities and black with black farmers, you're struggling with land access and land tenure. And so we're working on things around heirs' property laws to make sure that you can maintain a land base in these communities, because when the land's lost, it doesn't stay in agriculture. And if we don't realize the value of food, we, we should now. In order to have that food, you gotta have farmers, in order to have, you gotta have land. And so we gotta tighten up laws around that to help secure the land base, even and especially in these black communities, because we are a significant part of the farming population and should be Uh, its a benefit to the country, but also some of the other underlying issues around debt and around uh, credit access. And so one of the major things that we're working on with a network of other farm organizations is really trying to create a black farmer financial institution. Something because at the end, the the largest lawsuit in this country where where USDA admitted discrimination among black farmers, where black farmers couldn't get access to credit, and you're talking about a lawsuit that cost this country over $2 billion. That Now, what do you do to make sure this doesn't happen again? Because money was paid out, but systems weren't changed. And so you got a lot of people that were left with debt, and debt is going to run them out of farming. It's going to change the landscape of our communities if we don't deal with it. And we got access to credit in the future. So a lot of the uh, advocacy work that we're working on deals with things around that nature, around land access, around debt forgiveness, and around credit.
5: Absolutely. Um, I I think I kind of want to just circle back to um, I, I think you all kind of said you're hopeful that um, this will the pandemic will lead to people making different choices, but that you're doubtful that it will. Almost I think almost everybody said that, and um, I guess I, I wanted to circle back to that before we finish because. Um, I don't think we've we've really landed on like is there a message for eaters, chefs, um, just people who aren't the producers of food um, that that is coming from this pandemic that you want to get across about the resilience of local food systems? Like, if, if you could talk to people about like why this should kind of make you think about um, local food, um, what what kind of argument would you make about um, what this pandemic has demonstrated and the resilience of local food.
2: Well, you've seen these, for one thing, you've seen these huge shifts. You've seen these small producers who on, you know, one day they think they've maybe lost their entire market because they were completely dependent on restaurants. But then a couple of weeks later, they could actually shift because yeah. they were small enough and they had enough community connections to pick up the phone and say, can I sell at your market? Can I join your CSA? Can like We've just seen some amazing um, relationships and new collaborations and partnerships come out of this that are only possible when you have a regional relationship-based food system. Like Cornelia, like the Federation of Southern Cooperatives is a perfect example of that. You, you've you been around for 50 years, families and, and, and businesses that have been tied together in a way that Pr- presents such strength and resilience in in a moment of crisis. So, I, I mean, I think that, yeah, the, sure, like people are gonna see lower prices at the grocery store and some are going to need to take advantage of that given what's happening with jobs, with unknowns, with unemployment. I mean, there's, there's so many variables that are gonna require that some consumers need to, to do what they can in this moment. But I think hopefully for many people they're going to th- think about what does this place mean to me and I want to support my community and these farms that are here and are going to be here no matter what's around the corner. So hopefully that's going to translate into leaders and lawmakers who also understand that and will um, take action to make sure that we're not going to lose all of our farmland <laughs> to development or to, you know, um, more consolidated operations or um, whatnot, we are going to really prioritize small and local uh, food systems and farmers and resiliency in the future. But I got to say, I I agree, but I wouldn't
4: want to rely completely on raised consumer awareness. I really, really think that this is an opening for real policy shifts. For black farmers, because you cannot have a resilient crisis-ready food system without equity, Um, for uh, procurement standards, for shifting, as Wendy said, shifting um, federal subsidy programs from large commodity to small to mid-scale agriculture, which benefits from very little subsidies. Our farmers won't apply for crop insurance because it's just so much paperwork for not much gain. Um, And yet they feed a whole section of their community. um, And it's so direct, it makes no sense. Um, So so I would combine the free market consumer raised awareness with a strong legislative policy push that ensures that Our food systems are never, ever again in this vulnerable position.
3: Uh, I I agree also, and I'm gonna uh, echo what has been said. Uh, We have to look at this from the food system perspective and make sure people understand that we are all a part of this system. And we talk about the food system, we're not just talking about farmers. We're talking about from the producer all the way to the consumer. And those chefs that you brought up, uh, Lisa, they are very much a part of this. Um, they're preparing the food, and I think they have a they have a lot of influence uh, on folks that come to these restaurants and beyond. And I think we have to use all that influence for the things that Nina and Wendy mentioned, in terms of really how do we allocate or reallocate resources. We have to realize we should realize after this pandemic that farming is a public service. Uh, yes, there need to be low uh, low price food in this country for folks who can't afford it. But when there is that situation, it can be subsidized when we start realizing that farmers are public servants and that food is mandatory. Because again, we look at them that these farmers have been and they're still the first responders. And how do you support your first responders? You have to. And so I think when we all realize that and we realize it from a food system perspective where all of us are adding to it, whereas the producers talking about it, the consumers talking about it, but also the chefs talking about it, and those distributors, everybody talking about it and realizing that this is a public service, that we have to have food, and our food system is fragile. And it was shown during this pandemic, and it's shown every time a disaster comes. But it's always saved by those folks who bear the biggest burden, those small farmers and landowners. And it's about time that we start supporting them them and putting legislation in place that really builds on that. But it comes from a simple concept of realizing that these farmers are providing a public service.
7: And I agree with all that as well. And um, I just like to add also health insurance. Um, as farmers are essential workers, just having health insurance so that two farmers can stay on the farm versus, you know, one and one has to have a job in town. Um, again, reiterating local food is not a luxury. It's, it's a necessity. And that Farmers like myself, um, we were we were able to be really nimble and um, kind of slide slide in without a hiccup. We were able to help um, in these situations and just creating that support um, for these kinds of uh, for small and mid-sized farms um, is so important. Um, net- networking is also a, a huge thing, and I know a lot of the organizations here are. Um, that are represented are working uh, with networks of farmers, but that whole networking, um, community building, uh, regional food system building is it's all together. It's all it's all one, and um, those are really important um, for small and mid-sized farmers. Um, and also, I think that we we need more infrastructure. Um, there's infrastructure there in place for the big commodity farms, uh, the, the commodities, but there isn't for um, yet for local food systems. And that includes processing, um, not just meat processing, but vegetable processing and, and aggregation and these delivery, um, the delivery systems. Um, those are all things that, that, that we need as local and mid-sized farms as, uh, for, um, to help us grow.
5: I love that you brought up infrastructure because it's a really nerdy um, thing that nobody ever talks about. Right? <laughs> like, in it's like the core of food systems, but it never gets talked about. You know, growing the food gets talked about, but I, I think we should. We're about to wrap up, but um, I think what a cool place to end because um, it's this thing that never comes up. So, just want to put out to everyone before we wrap up: Is there specific infrastructure? That you think could be fixed, um, you know, added on to, really um, wrapped up in order to support local food. Like, if you could choose a piece of infrastructure to really improve um, for local food systems, what would it be?
3: Cold storage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 would, I would, I would definitely echo that. But uh, as Wendy mentioned, the lo- local processing local processing and distribution channels. We found dealing with these food box programs, it's hard to get uh, transportation in when you're talking about moving from a farmer to a nonprofit, moving small places in the community. Nobody can do that. And so really having access to that infrastructure that, that both have mentioned here, that Wendy and Dean have mentioned, but also transportation in there. But at the heart of it, it has to be owned by those farmers and their communities make it local otherwise that you put it at the risk of everything else
2: well i'm going to say technology (laughs) (laughs) yeah because that obviously that's what we're working on and it's it's critical with all of these other things but we have to reach consumers we have to reach them more effectively we have to bring them in we have to really be competitive where consumers are as as a community so all of the above and we need, we need to modernize these systems. We need to be in this new fo- food market um, place wherever it's going. Wendy, did and you want to add I'm
7: them in the business, I just want to add um, these exp- uh, expanding um, current meat processing plants in Iowa. These smaller yes. custom <laughs> processors, um, supporting them or being able to expand those um, businesses um, would be really helpful. I think Will Harris said one time that uh, every state in the U.S. should have a mid-sized uh, processing plant, uh, you know, that's somewhere in the middle. Not really small, not really big, um, but that can that can support um, a number of far- farmers um, and their processing needs. Um, but also the expansion of some of these smaller units, which are scattered across every state, um, that support is really needed. Uh,
5: I actually... Wendy, that's so funny that you said that because I interviewed Will Harris once, and that it's the same. He said a similar thing to me that really stuck with me, which is he said, "My farm is not scalable, but it is replicatable." Which you know, there could be a you know, incredible all these small farms all over all over the country and and systems that support them. Um, well, thank you all so much. Um, this was an incredible discussion, and uh, thank you all for joining us.
3: Pleasure. Thank
5: you. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Thank you, everyone, so much for being here. Please have an awesome rest of your day. Thank you so much to our panelists for such an incredibly robust discussion. Uh, and please check out the uh, virtual events uh, tab on the James Beard Foundation website if you'd like to uh, go to more uh, webinars like this one. So, have a great day, everyone.
5: Thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. We'll be back in the fall. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.